0: Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your patience and love with us because we recognize that throughout our land today, there is very little praise and worship and honor of the Lord taking place. This weekend is mostly reserved for the individual selfish plans of people who Decide that you aren't worthy, that you have no place in their lives. So, Lord, we come this morning uh, confessing that our land is in great need of a touch from the hand of the Savior. We come, Lord, um, confessing our sins to you, and they are many. We thank you that you are the forgiver of sins. We pray for our country and our countrymen, recognizing, Lord, that we confess before you that we have failed you so much and you have blessed us with so much. Your grace to us is truly amazing. You shower your grace upon this land in spite of its people because of your great love for us and Lord we thank you for that and we pray that with everything in us Lord those who love you and serve you Lord I pray that that our lives would be a witness to the Lord Jesus Christ in this land you've called us to go and be witnesses and I pray father that in the marketplace in the workplace in the recreational places everywhere in this land Lord your people would walk boldly before you, and that we would be the salt and light that you've called us to be, oh God. So I pray that you would instruct us from your word now, teach us your ways, help us to understand the nature of the world we live in and how we are to fulfill our responsibilities in it, I pray, for Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. I wonder if we had an audience with Sir John A. Macdonald today. And I wonder if he had, first of all, an opportunity to spend some time in Canada looking around to see the way things were. I wonder if we have turned out the way that the founders of this country envisioned. I wonder if they had in mind that, that our children would be, would be taught in school that a girl is not a girl and a boy is not a boy. I, I wonder if they envisioned ever that, that on an annual basis in the month of June, our primary students would be paraded out into the schoolyard to salute a flag that is fundamentally raised honoring the way people practice sex. I I can't for the life of me imagine that that's what our founders had in mind when they framed the Constitution of Canada. Would you open your Bibles today to Mark chapter 3? I have a few questions to put before you this morning under the title of Why Canada Hates Jesus. I know that's a bit of a shocking title. On Canada Day, maybe you're hoping for something rah rah. By the way, I love Canada. I think it's the best country in the world. But we have some problems, we have some issues. Uh, Why does our country herald as heroes those who cheer for strange kinds of sexuality and other forms of depraved social ideas while aiming fierce hostility? at its law-abiding and socially moral and responsible citizenry? Why does Canada so easily dismiss from the marketplace of ideas those who hold the key to spiritual life and soul contentment and blindly but favorably rush toward any ideas of those who will terminate life at both ends, coming and going? Why is Canada bent on making everyone conform to the lowest form of immoral existence. Why did the people of the first century hate Jesus? Why didn't people of the first century rise up and support that good man? Why don't more of us speak out at the absurdity of the hour on behalf of our good God. If you're feeling a little persecuted these days, or certainly perplexed, or wondering what's going on, the study today in the book of Mark, I think, is going to help us a little bit. At least it's going to help us to understand that how things are shaping up in our country is really no different than the way things were when Jesus was walking this land. Here we are, all these several thousand years later, and the same reasons people hated Jesus then are the same reasons they hate him today. The reason I can say, why does Canada hate Jesus is because we're actually no different than the first century. I mean, we've changed a little bit in scientific knowledge and technology and sophistication and sanitary conditions and all of those kinds of things, but. The human heart has not really changed one tiny bit. Which doesn't shock or surprise any of you. So I want to approach uh, today's study uh, from two directions. I want to look at exploring why people hated Jesus so we'll understand a little bit better about our own culture, what's going on around us. And then I want to explore the The mandate that Christ has given us, what should we do as we live in a culture that hates Jesus? What's our role? What's our responsibility? So two things I want to look at, two major things. Why are things the way they are, and what do we need to do about it, all right? So if you have your Bibles, Mark chapter 3, we have a fairly long text I want to look at, verses 7 through 35, so let's look at that together. Mark 3, 7 to 35. I want you to pay particular attention to the the things that people called Jesus. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, And the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him. To keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many. So that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law, who came down from Jerusalem, said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. This is the Word of God. Why did people of the first century hate Jesus? Matthew Henry made this short statement that pretty much answers the question. Christ is hated because sin is loved. Christ is hated because sin is loved. We're going to see that as we move through this particular text. Passions run high, you know, in matters of the heart. Especially in the area of self-worth or independence or moral judgment. So what is going on? And what must we do about it? I want to look at four causes this morning, first of all, of opposition to Jesus. And the first is found in verses 7 through 12. Notice this morally senseless people have no interest or have no internal cause to want Satan evicted from their lives. Morally senseless people have no internal cause. To want Satan evicted from their lives. We can learn something very important about humans from the study of demons that unwittingly house themselves in humans. Um, you notice the uh, crowds are, are, are coming. They're crowding Jesus. He, he has to move back into a boat. I mean, he's very popular... Uh, as he's dishing out healing and all kinds of things like that. And, and so we have this crowds around him, but it says there in verse 11, whenever evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. There's something quite dramatically informing about this particular statement. You've got demons who, who actually know who Jesus is. But what should What should cause us reflection and thought is, but they have no concern about doing anything different with their existence. They know exactly who he is. But they are entirely morally senseless. I want you to think about that. That that demons have no sensitivity toward things that are right. They're not compelled in any way. I mean, it's hard for us to understand because as we sit here today, we have an innate sense of right and wrong. And as we come to know Christ, he moves within in our lives and, and creates within us a hunger for what is right, a, a thirst for righteousness. We can't imagine what it is to have no moral sense about us. But if we're ever going to understand the nature of people who don't know Jesus, we have to understand particularly as we study and understand demons, demons have no moral sense whatsoever. They can know who Jesus is. They can know who God is. But they have no sensitivity to what is right whatsoever. Now keep in mind that people who don't know Jesus are entirely influenced by the kingdom of the evil one. Let me remind you, in case you've forgotten, how Paul describes people who don't know Jesus. He describes them in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 and 3, but I just want to look at 1 and 2. As for you, referring to all of us prior to our salvation... As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. In other words, you had no spiritual sensitivity. When you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that's Satan, you followed him. It may have been unwitting, You may have been duped. You may not have known that, but that's what you were doing. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So the situation is that the demons here cry out to him, you are the son of God, but they have no concern about that, no sensitivity about that. There are people all over the land of Canada. They, they know about God. They have heard about Jesus. But they have absolutely no concern or sense whatsoever. Their hearts are not moved in any possible way. We need to understand that about the people around us. All of this crazy shines a light on one clear fact. And that is that people are desperately looking for help, but they have no idea where to look. These people are crowding around Jesus. They are so messed up that, that even elementary right escapes their imagination. Demons are so morally senseless, they have no concept of right or moral righteousness. They actually know who Jesus is, and they shriek His name believing that somehow, by calling out his name, they have some sort of control or power over him. They actually view uh, God in some superstitious way. You ask your question, why would, the, why would the demons shriek out the name, you are the son of God? Why would Satan want to advertise who Jesus really is? That's what I'm telling you. They have no moral sensitivity. Nothing they do makes any sense. They actually think that, that, that there's some dual power here going on, that, that if they invoke the name of God, that somehow they will have control over Him and they, He won't be able to do to them anything. The very fact is they... Um, live in this oblivion to rightness or any sense of wisdom. And so it is with people around us who are steeped in sin. At the same time, they, they are fine with discrediting him because Jesus clearly doesn't want demons advertising in advance of him. He's not looking for demons to replace John the Baptist, that wherever he goes, demons are announcing, hey, here comes Jesus, the Son of God. It's not like he's looking for publicity from the demonic. That's why he tells them and gives them strict orders not to tell who he is, who he was. I mean, most of you will understand that it doesn't go well for you that it appears that demons are your associates. So Jesus silences them. And I think that's the take heart moment for us in this morally senseless world that we live in that's impacted and influenced by this kind of thinking is that Jesus, with one word, silences the masses of their blasphemies. There's a second um, section here in this text as Jesus makes his way to the mountainside. It says he calls to himself those he wanted. And we read down through this great list of names we've all heard of, the disciples, and we know these are great champions of the faith. And then we get to the very end of this section, and there's something that just doesn't seem right. It's not like all the others. We get down to Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Betrayed him? Jesus called to himself those he wanted. It, it, what an incredible privilege there, there's to, to be called by Jesus. It's no small thing to be invited to walk closely with Christ. You know, I pick up in this section here is even those who should know better might betray him. If he interferes with their preferred personal agenda. If you're wondering what's happening around. You've got this example in the scriptures. Of someone who walked very closely with Jesus. By the name of Judas Iscariot. He was called to be with him. He was wanted by Jesus. He, he was appointed. Or literally made. The making or creating into an apostle. Interesting reality going on here that there's 12 tribes of Israel and Jesus calls 12 guys resetting by the way everything now to follow Jesus way and he gives some of them nicknames you know you give your closest associates nicknames guys are always giving their friends nicknames Jesus calls Simon Peter He calls Jimmy and Johnny Boanerges, the sons of thunder. But this label at the end here is no nickname. This is a horrible reality, a horrible tragedy, incredibly devastating description. It's a betrayal. And we know and we learn and we will learn as we move through Mark that the reason Judas betrayed him is because Jesus didn't meet the expectations of his own personal agenda. You have, one thing I have shockingly discovered in recent years is the numbers of people who are most vocally opposing Jesus in our culture today were people who had some sort of introduction to church or Jesus as a kid. Those who have venomously checked out are regularly those who have checked out because Jesus didn't manifest himself according to the way they preferred to live. And they have become the most vocal opposers of the things of God in our culture today. Well, we move from demons to betrayers to a third category, a third section of people. His family This is the shocker of all shockers, I think. Did you notice that as we were reading it? Jesus entered a house and a crowd gathered. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. For they said, he is crazy. Literally. His family vocalized publicly that Jesus was crazy. This third group of people, there's lots of people who prefer to protect their social reputation rather than embrace Jesus' radical redefining of the social order. you know there was a time not so long ago i've noticed a dramatic change there was a time not so long ago when christians were considered the respectable class of our country they were honored i remember a time when i was pastoring that i was generally treated with honor in the marketplace I am actually treated with dishonor in the marketplace now. It's, you know, I, I have to think twice about announcing who I am because I know how I'm going to be treated. I'm going to be treated as an embarrassment to culture. In, in a matter of decades, this has completely changed because people are looking at us now, looking at me, and they're looking and thinking, you are crazy. You are one of those. You're crazy. Just like Jesus' family thought of him. He's out of his mind. Jesus was an embarrassment to his family. Do you realize when it says here they were coming to take charge of him, they were actually like, they were coming, look, at, they were talking to each other, saying, we, we've got to go and get him and, I, I know, everybody, he's, he's an embarrassment to us as well. We're, we're going to try and take him home. That, that, was, that was the approach here. He's a social embarrassment to the family. Some of you know what that's like in your own situation. You are a social embarrassment to your family. They don't want to introduce you or... Tell anybody what you are or what you believe. This is my religious kid. This is my religious brother. You're an embarrassment to them. They wish you would be quiet and not embarrass yourself in public so much. I mean, Jesus, by the way, he had quit his job. He was the eldest son the family was depending on his carpentry. He was poking at the establishment. The social leaders. The, the power brokers of the day. Jesus, come on. You're, 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 you're highlighting our family. You're going to get us in trouble. Stop it. Quiet down. Come home. Look it. Come home. We, you know. We'll let you, you don't even have to work. You can just sit in a chair. We'll, we'll feed you. But please don't go out in public anymore. He was hanging around with outcasts and riffraff and ragamuffins. Not like an upstanding citizen of Nazareth. You're not one of us. Don't rock the boat. Don't Just blend in. March in our parades. Come on. Salute our flags. Go along with the culture. Or we're going to have to begin a smear campaign. Like we're not going to listen. We're not going to take responsibility for you. So we're going to call you crazy in public so that we look better to our friends. Beware of the social hall monitors in your life. You know the ones in your family who try to tampen you down, dampen your enthusiasm about Jesus? Come on. Don't be so fanatic. Here's the good news for you, though. Those who oppose the will of God become the enemies of Jesus. That is the new cost of discipleship that Jesus presents to us here. But those who do the will of God and reject the ways of Satan become Jesus' closest family. You may be a social outcast to your family, but you are closest family to Jesus. That ought to make all the difference in the world. And then finally there's this fourth group. They're the religionists. The religionists, by the way, become very possessive of their positions and their settled systems and regularly disagree on who is really doing Jesus' work. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem, by the way, Jesus had garnered enough attention that they sent the big guns down. Okay, the little teachers of the law are not being able to contain this guy. They can't seem to handle him. So we're sending down the guys from head office. Right? That's who came from Jerusalem. The head office guys show up. And the first thing they do is they take a look at Jesus and say, He is possessed by the king of the demons. the so-called theological specialists are less spiritually sensitive than the demons themselves. We are living in times where Jesus is becoming an embarrassment to the church. Are you seeing that? There are all kinds of churches who are saying, well, now I I wouldn't go that far. I'm not prepared to accept what Jesus said here. He was speaking to his culture. It really doesn't apply to us. He's embarrassing us. How he is packaged, stepping on our theological toes... And it says here that Jesus started speaking to them in parables. When Jesus starts speaking in parables to you, you know you're in trouble. We're going to look at that a little bit more next week, Lord willing. Because um, he might as well be speaking in a foreign language. And he's doing that on purpose. But I want to leave that for next week. I don't want to get too deep into that. So as you look at this, of course, this has been a section of scripture that has probably bothered many of you your whole life. The unpardonable sin. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Of of the many things in the scriptures that cause fear and consternation among believers, this is it. I've had so many people come to me over the years and say... I'm afraid I've committed the unpardonable sin. Can you please help me with that? It's a big deal. I understand it. We we should be concerned about the possibility that we might blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Why? Because Jesus says here that all kinds of sins will be forgiven. All kinds of blasphemies will be forgiven. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. Wow. Okay, look, at let's, let's, let's ease some of the pressure here real quick about who does this and who doesn't do this. First of all, they have accused Jesus of operating... Under the strength of the king of demons. They have accused Jesus of being an associate brokering demonic activity on behalf of Satan. That's what they've done. Okay, so let's understand what's, being, what's, what's happening here. And Jesus gives them this explanation. He says, Does that even make logical sense to anybody? He says, can a house divided stand? Why would Satan employ me to kick Satan out of everything? Does that even make sense to anybody? And he's making the point here that that a house divided, it's absurd. And secondly, he says, how can you go in and take from a strong man something unless you first tie him up and then you can rob him? And so he literally is saying, if I'm able to go into Satan's domain and rob him of his possessions, that means I first must be tying up the strong man, which means I must be stronger than the strong man. And the only one who's actually stronger than the strong man, which is Satan, is God himself. So Jesus is declaring in parables... (laughs) for you who understand because you know the Lord. Makes perfect sense to you. Makes perfect sense to me. He is actually declaring here that not only is he pounding on bad religion, but he is actually pummeling hell and winning. Jesus is tying up the strong man because he is the stronger one. And the good news for all of us is this, that Satan, Beelzebub, the the kingdom of demons, has no power over you. God is the one who overpowers the, the, the forces of evil and hell. But here's the issue, Jesus says. You are looking at incontrovertible evidence of the work of God tying up the strong man Satan and evicting people from his, evicting Satan from the hearts and lives of people. You are, you are looking at incontrovertible evidence of the work of God through the power of God's Spirit and you are classifying it as Satanic. That is unpardonable. The Holy Spirit's job is to reveal truth. And furthermore, to cause or enable God's people to receive and welcome that truth. That's, the, that, that's one of the roles of the Holy Spirit. And what Jesus is saying to these teachers of the law, the higher-ups in religion, the ones who are holding everybody in oppression, he is saying to them that you are unable to understand the things of God. You are the ones who are not in tune with the Holy Spirit because you are not recognizing the revelation of truth. And you are not welcoming that truth into your life, which means The Holy Spirit has nothing whatsoever to do with you. And because of that, you presently are living in a state of eternal damnation. So, here's the thing. If you are concerned that you have blasphemed the Holy Spirit, that in itself is evidence that you have not. Okay? And if you can repent, if God lays it on your heart, revealing truth to you, and you are receiving that truth, and you can repent, then you have not committed the unpardonable sin. Repent! And be saved. That's the teaching of the scriptures. So, four types. The morally senseless. Those with a personal agenda. Those who prefer their social reputation. And those religionists who do not want to give away their position even in the face of Jesus' truth. These are the people who hate Jesus. But what are we to do about it? If we are to be hated in this culture, what should it be for? I want you to notice in the text, there are three things, and we'll wrap it up with this. Jesus called his disciples to be with him in verse 14, that they might be with Him, that, they might, that He might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. Those three things. The three things that, that we are called to do, the three things, the three ways we are to impact a culture that hates Jesus. Same culture that Jesus lived in is this. The first is we are to never give up on calling sinners to the only way to live. We are never, ever to give up on calling sinners. Jesus sent us out to proclaim the Word of God and to be with Him. We are to touch and to teach people. We are to be witnesses of the words and ways of Jesus everywhere we are, regardless of the embarrassment we are to our family or however it appears. We are to follow Jesus wherever He leads us, into wherever He goes. This is not a casual friendship with Jesus. He called His disciples to be with Him in an intense way, a a way of total commitment. Come and follow me. Leave where you are and follow me. Knowing Jesus by fully engaging in His life over my life. I am crucified with Christ. I no longer live the life that I now live. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave His life for me. That's what Jesus is calling us to do in this culture on this Canada Day weekend and going forward. To never give up on calling sinners to the only way to live. And history testifies to the simple fact that God works through very imperfect people like you and me. So if you're sitting there saying, I don't know how I could be used of God to do this, I have great news for you. God works through the most imperfect of people like me and like you. That's who he specializes in working through. And the more you hang around with Jesus, the more of your rough edges are sanded off so that you're more and more usable by Christ. That's why he said he called his disciples to be with him. He called you upon salvation to be with Jesus. That means a different way of living. That means spending as much time with Jesus as you can. Well, how do I do that? Through the Word of God, through prayer, through gathering with God's saints. You have all of the tools. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you 24-7, 365. Jesus is always with you. And now it's up to you to hang out with him and and allow him to change your life. And you will make a difference in the culture around you. You You will make a difference. It's not about more comfortable or more convenience or simply nice or being a good person this is a matter of life and death that we live brothers and sisters the people around us calling them to life instead of death we have to come to the place where we really believe that those people outside of christ are dining every day of their lives at the table of poison And it's our role to witness to a better way, the only way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I have called you to be with me, and I have sent you out to preach this truth. Every one of us. The second is to have authority to drive out demons. We have been given the responsibility to destroy the works of the devil. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, and he has commissioned us to continue on in that mission of destroying the works of the devil. And it starts in our own heart. It starts in my heart. It starts in your heart. To destroy anything in our lives, in our hearts, that displeases the Lord. To to ask ourselves the question: Am I thinking of the ways of man, or am I thinking of the ways of God? You remember when Jesus addressed Peter and he said, "Get behind me, Satan." Why did he tell him to get behind him? Because he said to him, "You do not have in your mind what the things of God. You have in your mind the things of man. That's the things of man are the works of the devil." And you have to ask, I have to ask of my heart every day. Do I have in mind the things of man or the things of God? Be honest, don't deceive yourself. Be honest about every decision you're making, every, every decision with the time you're spending, with the, the way you're spending your money, the, the, the way you're speaking to people, the, the choices that you're making... Am I, do I have in my mind the things of God or the things of man? And don't be careful that you don't overrate the state of your heart, which will leave you vulnerable to a false sense of spiritual security like Peter. Lord, no matter what, I won't abandon you. Be careful. Don't get the idea that you can let up on this and get sloppy about this. You need to continue to have an intensive, concentrated relationship with Jesus Christ, never ever trusting yourself that you can just coast on this and you'll be fine. Don't overrate your spiritual condition. It can tank really quickly. I've been in the ministry long enough to notice this and see this. But... Nor should you downplay the reality of the cost that this is in your life. Or you will leave Jesus on his own when things get tough. I'm going to get a little bit political for a moment here because it's Canada Day. But it's going to be generic, so don't panic. It'll be principled, not specific. In the mid to late 30s, talk about 1930s now. In the mid to late 30s, in Nazi Germany, 90% of the population registered as Christian. Okay, I want you to let that sink in for a moment. In Nazi Germany before the Second World War, 90% of the citizenry registered themselves as Christian. Of that 90%, 60% registered themselves as um, serious, very somewhat religious. So that's the majority of the population. Now the truth of the matter is, brothers and sisters, and I'm speaking to us because we are in a moment in our country. Without the capitulation of the Christians in 1930s Germany, Hitler could not have done what he did. The destroying of six million Jews, and the death of 50 million other people. Without the capitulation of the Christians in that country, he could not have done what he did. So I'm, I'm throwing this out to you on this Canada Day weekend. Should a Christ follower ever vote for a pro choice, pro abortion politician? Should a Christian ever vote for a politician who approves of the confusing of our children about their gender? Should a Christian ever vote for anyone who jeopardizes the freedom of religion? I can tell you from Christian leadership perspective the present governing structures of our country are requiring of our church or asking of our church or stating of our church that we grant you freedom of religion but we expect you to practice freedom from religion at the same time. I've already taken this up by the way with the politicians. I'm not telling you anything here that I'm not speaking vocally about myself. How can you have freedom of religion and be expected to be free from religion at the same time? It's a paradox that can't match. Wake up. There was no wake up in 1930s in the country of Germany. Germany. We are called upon to destroy the works of the devil, and to speak against it. And by the way, since sickness—and we've talked about this—is connected to the, uh, is connected with the results of the kingdom of Satan, pastors and healthcare workers are both at work destroying the works of the devil. You healthcare givers, helping people to heal and get better, are destroying the works of the devil. Finally, we're called upon in this whole family perspective here for building a church where all who share in Christ can share in one another. Who is your family? Whoever does the will of God is my brother, my sister, my mother. You know, when we look around here, we should be able to look around like Jesus did. Who is my family? Jesus looked around the circle in front of him and said, this is my family. As radical as Jesus made this statement, and by the way, there were a lot of ripples in the ancient Near East when Jesus said this. But let's understand what kind of a church we have to have. We must do whatever we can since we are called upon to be in the family of God. And if we are doing the will of God, we are in His family. We are called upon in every possible way to concentrate all of our efforts not on ministering just to the family of families, but to make certain that the church is the family for people who don't have a family who love Christ. There are lots of people here who don't have anyone else but the family here. There are singles who are here who have no one else. This is their family. And we must do everything we can as a church all the time to make certain that our church is a family for those who otherwise don't have a family. And I can tell you that we're not doing a perfect job at it. But this is the goal. This is what Jesus has called us to. This is your family. So how and in what ways are we going to make certain that everyone gets to share with one another in this family? Father, I thank you for your word to us this morning. Um, I thank you for the evidence Around us, that is not different from the days you walked, the days Christ walked among us. So, Lord, um, as we look around us and the landscape around us, help us to um, further affirm with you today, to, to commit ourselves today, Lord. the responsibilities you've given to us in a culture that hates Jesus, that we might continue to witness to the ways and the words and the rightness of Christ, that work diligently to destroy the works of the devil through your power, and Lord, that we might create around us a family the way you intended. Those who do the will of God are our family, Lord. For Jesus' sake, I pray, amen. What I love about being a Canadian is we never give up. We keep fighting to the end. I can remember in 1972 when we needed to win three games or we would lose to the Russians. There wasn't a Canadian in this country who gave up. And certainly not the boys on the ice. We didn't give up. We don't give up. How much more should we be as God's people, those kind of people, who don't give up? Don't go down without a fight. Satan is feeling like this is his moment in our country. This is an important time for us. We've been talking about this for a long time together. I'm inspired by the stories of so many of you who I've heard of, teachers and people in healthcare and and the struggles and the challenges that you go through in law and and, and all the other professions and and the cost that it is to stand for Christ. But that's what he's called us to do, to never give up and to keep speaking for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to continue to, to challenge and push back the darkness. So on this Canada Day 152, let's not give up. Let, let's push through and do what we are called to do. Our God is the strong man. Our God will bind the powers of evil. Trust Him. Believe in Him. Stand forth with courage and boldness. Do not cave into the social pressures around you. Speak boldly. Witness to the greatness of our Savior. Be his witnesses wherever you are. And if they think you're socially crazy, they thought Jesus was too. And in so doing, God will change lives. He'll change your life and he will change the lives of people around you who you thought were impossible to reach. They just need to hear the truth. So let's tell it to them. Father, we thank you. We praise you on this Canada Day weekend. We thank you for this country. We thank you that we can still speak like this, boldly. But Lord, it's, it's razor thin to going away. Help us, every one of us, to believe that it's our individual responsibility to shine where you've placed us, to speak boldly for Christ, and to to destroy the works of the devil, and to embrace the family of God, our family, your family, who is your family, the ones who do the will of God. So we thank you on this day, and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen.